This is Comic Shenanigans, episode number 31, Comic Reviews for the week of November the 28th. Welcome back to the show. This is Comic Shenanigans, episode number 31. Uh, We're looking at comic reviews for the week of uh, Wednesday, November the 28th. My name is Adam Chapman, the regular host of Comic Shenanigans. Uh, We actually had a fair bit of comics coming out this week. Uh, To be honest, uh, I apologize for the episode going up a little bit late. Usually we go up on uh, on the Sunday, but it looks like this is probably going to go up very early early hours on Monday, uh, so sorry for a little bit of the delay. Uh, there's a, a fair bit of the books that came out this week, but uh, as life has its own demands sometimes, I didn't actually have a chance to read as many books as I generally do. Usually these review episodes have around 20 or so books, usually between 20 and 25 books are reviewed. Uh, this week it's closer, I think, to 17 or so, uh, as there, just, there was a lot of material to go through, and to be honest, there was a lot of books that I just wasn't as interested in reading, so I do apologize if you're hoping to to hear me review certain of those books. Uh, we'll jump right in. Uh, the first review or first book we're going to be looking through is uh, A Plus X number two. Now, I wasn't really sure what to expect from this book, and I, I kind of like that in some ways because I don't know what to expect because every issue should be different. I mean, you're having various different team ups, uh, different art, uh, creative teams uh, handling these characters. You have an X Men character and an Avengers related character teaming up. Uh, the last issue was kind of an odd one because you had Captain America and Cable, which is an odd pairing, especially because it was a time travel story. So it didn't necessarily feel like it really added a lot because really the story took place already. Um, but it was kind of interesting. And then we had a, a Hulk and a Wolverine story, which felt odd and a little bit out of place, but at the same time appropriate for the book. So it was kind of an, an interesting case, especially for the first issue. Uh, so this second issue, we have a team up between Black Widow and Rogue, which is written and penciled by Chris Bachelot. And then we also have an Iron Man Kitty Pride story, which is written by Peter David, and the artist is Mike Del Mundo, who I don't think I've seen any art from before. Uh, so those are that's an interesting creative team lineup. And so far, I'm digging this. It kind of reminds me of what Avenging Spider-Man could have been, where it had quirky team-ups between you know, the world of Spider-Man and the world, of, his world as an Avenger, and the characters he encountered in that book, and what it would be like if they kind of uh, teamed up and on a more regular basis. But this actually seems like it could actually have a lot of really interesting um, aspects to it. So this this first story that we got between Black Widow and. Uh, um, I apologize. I already blanked on her name. Black Widow and Rogue. It was actually a lot of fun. It was great bachelor art. I didn't realize he wrote it as well. It was actually a, had a really good sense of snappy patter. It did feel like it was definitely existing in the current Marvel Universe because there's reference of these new Sentinels being created by uh, the Kilgore, who's involved with the current Hellfire Club. Uh, a really fun team-up between Rogue and, uh, and Black Widow. I actually really liked it a lot. And uh, it just... I don't know, just something about it, Just it, it, it hummed along quite nicely. It was a nice little team-up without taking itself too seriously. It was a kind of a fun little, like, this is what it would be like if these characters teamed up. There's something here that didn't really need to happen when there's a, a an, I'll call it an obligatory kiss scene between Rogue and uh, Black Widow so that Rogue can get Black Widow's uh, skill with a sniper rifle. I get where they're going with that, but it just felt kind of, overly unnecessary because there's no need for that to be why they could have just brushed hands it didn't need to be kissed and it just felt very like yeah you could tell a guy wrote this um but i did enjoy this and the art i actually thought really popped it, it um i find bachelor's art obviously is much better when he has time to really plot out his line work so then it, it prevents it from getting overly uh busy and uh and like just 
too much too many lines scratching on the page and this actually felt like a like he was almost at times holding back but it just it just felt i guess it just felt that way because it was so well put together so really good artwork uh the second story uh, not nearly as good artwork but i really dug the story as we have kitty pride coming to meet with tony stark about potentially working with resilient and uh and you know i really enjoyed this because oftentimes we forget that kitty pride is a genius and especially now that she's at uh, the school uh, the jean gray school they never ever bring up the fact that, G- that she is a certifiable genius and always has been so there's this great team up and if you've been reading recent issues of wolverine and the x-men this issue will make more sense because she recently was infested by the brood and so here she basically sneezes up some brood uh which sounds gross and it, it's very funny and it it ends on a very suitable note. Uh, there's a reason why her and Iron Man wouldn't necessarily mix all that well, and then we get that, and it's over. So both stories, they took place in relatively quick time span, and it, it kind of just felt like this was the day in the life of these people, and I really liked it. I uh, gave it an 8.5 out of 10. I did not expect to enjoy this issue nearly as much as I did, but I really dug it. Uh, next up is All New X-Men number 2. Last issue, I, I liked it. Uh, this issue I didn't quite like as much. Uh, this is by Brian Michael Bendis with artwork by Stuart Eminen. Uh, obviously, this is one of the biggest launches to come out of Marvel now. Uh, I, I, don't, I didn't know how I felt about the premise of the original team coming to the future, especially that being the original X-Men team. But it was kind of neat. Uh, the way it's been done, though, I think is kind of terrible. I can't understand what Bendis is thinking. Like, I can't... Even with everything that's going on, I don't think Beast would ever actually abuse the space-time continuum and go back in time and try to bring the uh, old X-Men forward. It just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Having them come into the future is cool, but I just feel like the inciting incident to bring them here doesn't quite make a lot of sense. That being said, who would be who wouldn't be scared of the future when uh, they get there and immediately there's someone jumping at you with claws and trying to kill you? Um, so I, and I, I guess one thing I had, and this is a problem I had with the first issue, is that although there's some really interesting concepts and ideas and some characterization, characterization isn't actually that all that bad. I do find it's moving achingly slow. Um, I feel like a different, a different writer could have already had these two issues could have been in one, if not even less than that. Like I just feel like. Yes, there's a lot to be had in terms of characterization, but it also feels like we get a lot of the same types of story beats repeated, and we could have probably just moved along further. Uh, this is a big launch. We got two issues that came out in November, and I, in some ways it feels like we're as far as one issue would have gotten us by a different writer. I gave this a 7 out of 10. A lot of it's because the Bendis script could be a little bit stronger, it could be a little bit faster paced, it could be a little bit less uh, meandering, and we could have a little bit less of Beast kind of doing something very out of character. The artwork was brilliant by Eminem, though, so I gave, I mean, that's why it gets a 7 out of 10 and not anything lower. Uh, next up is Aquaman, and this is number 14. Uh, I This is by Jeff Johns. Pete Woods d- does the artwork here. I'm not as big a fan of Pete Woods. Uh, the, obviously, we've had Ivan Reyes has done, was the most recent regular artist on this book, and I thought he just had a great sensibility, and Pete Woods uh, is, is good as well. Uh, sorry, and it's also by it's Pete Woods and uh, I guess Perry Perez. Um, actually, I think this is some of the strongest Pete Woods artwork I've ever seen. That being said, it's still not as strong as uh, as Reyes, but it was still pretty interesting. I like the I I feel like I may have missed something, so I'm guessing that the brother that Aquaman's talking to this entire issue is just Ocean Master, right? Like we keep not quite seeing him, and he's not really named, and I'm kind of confused as to why that was. 
um, this was a good issue to kind of slow things down and look at where we're going going in the next storyline, which is the Throne of Atlantis, which is a crossover with Justice League. Um, but I dug it. Uh, it was actually a lot of fun. And I'm interested to see what comes next for all these characters. Uh, again, the artwork could have been a little bit stronger. Uh, next, that was a seven and a half out of ten. Next up is Astonishing X Men Annual. This is a book that kind of is an odd one in many ways, and uh, the annual doesn't make me feel any differently about it being an odd one. That being said, I really did like it a lot. Um, it's, it's not a very uh, sophisticated story. It's basically, uh, you know, North Star's supposed to go on his honeymoon, but uh, some of the X Men's loved ones have been marked for death, so uh, they have to kind of put things on hold put them in like a safe house location and go uh, stop the Friends of Humanity from targeting all their loved ones. Uh, fairly simple, but basically it gives, uh, gives David, sorry, not David, Kyle Janadu, uh, North Star's new husband, a chance to really communicate with the X-Men and find out more about the relationships between, between what it's going to be like to be dating, well not dating, married to someone who is an X-Man. So there actually is a lot of really fun characterization bits here, and actually I wouldn't res- I wouldn't expect anything less from Christos Gage who wrote it. David Baldion is the penciler. He actually does some pretty good stuff here. I actually dug this. Uh, I in some ways I thought this was a little bit more enjoyable than the regular series has been, just because it kind of tried a little bit less. It didn't feel as pretentious. It just kind of moved at its own pace and had a good time getting there, and I really really enjoyed that part of it. So I gave this an 8 out of 10. I didn't expect to enjoy it, and I think that's maybe why I'm giving it an 8 out of 10, because it's much better than I would have ever expected it to be, which I guess is kind of mean (laughs) that I'm not expecting more from this book, but, I don't know, annuals these days don't fill me with a lot of excitement, because half the time they don't really feel like they need to happen, and I actually really dug this, and it did feel like it was a natural outgrowth of the things that have been happening in the regular Astonishing X-Men series, so this made a lot of sense. Uh, next up is Batman Incorporated number five. I did not really like this. I I'm not a huge fan of the, the Damian Wayne as Batman. The first time we saw it, it was kind of neat, and I guess what Batman six six six. But seeing it again, just it kind of felt unnecessary. And uh, we got this future vision of what's what could happen in the future with Damian and I guess Barbara as well. Uh, I I don't really like the artwork at all. I just found the story kind of felt like it didn't matter because they, this supposed dream that means that these things could happen has already been altered. So I don't really see what the point is. Uh, this is Morrison writing it with Chris Burnham and artwork. Uh, the artwork by Burnham really reminded me of Fraser Irving, not necessarily in a good way. Um, I don't know. It just this just didn't do it for me. I I, I found it. I it made me go. What was the point? Like we have a finite amount of issues left before Morrison leaves this grand epic he's writing in Batman Incorporated, and yet this is this is what we get here. And then even like the la- how it kind of ends here, it felt very like when are we going to get the next issue? First of all, because it seems like it's been so long since the last one, and I just didn't really like what we got here. I, I think if I was to reread this, I could almost just not read this installment, and I would almost be okay, except for I'd have a few things missing as to how the cliffhanger got got to. But other than that, like, this just didn't work for me. I, and I, I don't care about this universe. I don't care about the future Damien, Damien as Batman. I mean, I like him. I actually like Damien right now as Robin. I don't care for him as Batman, and I don't care for how Morrison really wrote it. So I, it just didn't work. I gave this a, a 6 out of 10, I believe. Um, just yeah, I just gave it a six out of ten, and I almost feel too generous to be honest. Uh, next up is Dark Batman: The Dark Knight number fourteen. Uh, I think I really enjoyed the last issue a lot more than this one. 
Uh, this is written by Greg Hurwitz, and it's uh, penciled by David Finch. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of this version of Scarecrow. Last issue felt creepier. This issue definitely felt creepy, but it felt like there was less of a purpose. And we had some scenes that didn't really make a lot of sense, or they didn't... They just didn't make sense for Batman. Batman wouldn't have had the types of scenes here with Damien that he did. Uh, I don't care a lot for how creepy they're trying to make Scarecrow without... Scarecrow used to be creepy, but in a way that he was, he was preying on your slides, on your fears, etc. And now he just looks really hideous and disgusting and, and unsettling, but I, it feels less psychological. And I think that's one thing I really liked about the character originally, was that he was all about psychological fear and tormenting you. And now he just looks really messed, creepy and messed up, but not in a way that necessarily scares me. It just is unsettling. And that's a very different type of thing, and I just don't think it necessarily fits the version of Scarecrow that we've had before. But maybe that's part of the point. This is a new iteration. This is what they want to do in the New 52. This is what Greg Hurwitz and uh, David Finch are putting together, and we just got to enjoy it, I guess. And if you don't, you know, there's enough enough other Batman books that that's okay. I still did give it a 7 out of 10. I definitely enjoyed it a lot more than Batman Incorporated. Uh, next up is FF number 1. I really, really dug Fantastic Four number 1. This one... This book kind of fell a little bit flat. Uh, it's written by Matt Fraction, who also is writing Fantastic Four. The artwork's by Mike, Michael Alred, and uh, I've never really been a big fan of Alred. I really liked his recent uh, work on Daredevil, but this just didn't... I, I was never a Madman... Or sorry, was it Madman? Yeah, I think it's Madman fan. And I was never really into his Ecstatics run either, so some of his more celebrated stuff I haven't really been a fan of. His artwork was okay here, I just... I, I've, part of it's the script. I mean, you're a little bit all over the place in terms of getting this background into the characters uh, and what the Future Foundation means to these particular people. We don't really get a good sense of how exact. Like, Johnny Storm comes off stupider here than he does anywhere else when he's asking his girlfriend to be... A, a, he asked her about the thing, which is not... And it was supposed to be, like I guess, a funny gag, but it didn't really work for me. Uh, I like the idea that we're getting this alternate version of FF for this, you know, brief time period when Reed Richards isn't going to be around and with his team. Um, so you got She-Hulk, Medusa, and the Scott Lang on the team as long as, as well as the Sidhu She thing. Yeah, issue's not bad. It just it takes a lot of setup, and we need the setup, but it felt more like a zero issue in a lot of ways than necessarily a, a number one issue. Um, it stands. It's hard to give a real tell on how this book is going to play out because this issue is not a good barometer of that at all. We're getting, like, half the characters who show up in this book are supposed to not be in the book uh, because they're going to be elsewhere. So it'll be interesting to see what this team actually operates like once they take over uh, from uh, from the actual Fantastic Four and also seeing how they interact with the Future Foundation, but we don't really get a good sense of how that's going to work here. Um, so I'm cautiously optimistic. I gave it a 7.5 out of 10. I... It wasn't the worst artwork by Alred, and some of it was actually quite nice. It just, it just felt like a little bit of a tonal misfire. I wish we, I wish that we'd been having more of where Scott Lang really is as a person now, because he's never really been a character that's been that well characterized. Even though he's been around a long time and he's been on the FF before and on the Avengers, uh, he could have a lot better characterization. And some of his best characterization was in the year before he died. Uh, and with regards to him and him trying to have custody of Cassie. And then suddenly after he died, Cassie said a little bit older, and now she's a superhero, and now she's dead, and he's back. Um, so I wish there was a little bit more resolution there. Uh, I gave this a 7.5 out of 10. And that brings us to Flash, number 14. 
uh, you know, this book could be a lot better. Uh, artistically, it is on a whole other level. Uh, Storyline, it could really be... It feels like there's a lot of balls that are in the air, but they're not doing a good job um, of really handling them, which is an odd sentence. Uh, Francis Manipal and Brian Bucciolato are the writers or uh, plotters together, and then they're also the art team as well. Um... Having the whole uh, guerrilla warfare storyline happening and having Grodd invade, uh, I guess, Central City, that's actually really interesting. But then you also have the fact that the rogues are still kind of around and, and disorganized because of their storyline, which just recently ended and led right into this. And then you also have the Turbine character. You also have Iris West lost in the time stream. You also have Patty trying to deal with, dealing with the loss of Barry Allen. It feels that like there is a lot going on. And usually I'm really for that, but it also feels like a lot of it has been given short thrift at the same time. Like, there's been all these things that have been launched into the air as these are new story ideas, but then there's not a lot of resolution or uh, progression on various different plots. And so they're all kind of hanging there. But And then you also have this new uh, version of, uh, I guess, Daniel West, who may or may not be related to Wally West, who may or may not even exist. Um... And here we also got the appearance of Solovar. I'm excited to see where this issue goes, or where the next issue goes. Uh, the second last, uh, the last page, two-page spread is absolutely gorgeous because it's a really nice way of saying DC Comics proudly presented The Flash. And it was just a gorgeous way of doing this. And, and it's hard for me to communicate it on a visual, sorry, on an audio medium. We really have to see it because you have Grodd about to try and kill Barry. And then in the background you have... Uh, you know this the the city lights and the 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 buildings, and then two of them you kind of have it spelled out the DC, and then you have this car uh, this van careening towards them, and on the side of it says comics proudly presented, and then you have all this water spraying up, and in the water is written the Flash, so it's actually really cool if you look at it. Uh, but again, I'm, you're not looking at it right now; you're just listening to me tell you about it, and it's not helping at all. Um, still it's not a bad book by any stretch of the imagination it just i feel like it could be so much more especially with such a brilliant art team i gave this a seven out of ten though uh next up is a book that if it had a better art team it probably would have done better uh gambit number six uh this is another issue by asmus but instead of having clayman who was originally the artist in the book uh we got an issue with uh let's see Diogenes Neves, and I, I'm sure I massacred that, so I apologize. Uh, the art was really the, the only shortcoming for me. It felt like a little bit of uh, the Dodsons, but lacking some of the, uh, the, 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 the flash, the style, and the polish. Um, but it's, I like having Pete Wisdom in a book, and I like that he was kind of facing off with Gamba here. I like that we have the return of uh, a character from MI-13, uh, who is now holding Excalibur, Aphasia. Uh, so there's some really cool stuff here, and I like that the idea that now, you know, everyone kind of thinks that Gambit is, you know, got basically has his own strike team, um, and, you know, and he's, he's operating a criminal network with armed with ma- weapons of mass destruction. It's a really cool concept, and there's no nothing in the storyline to really show that he isn't doing this. It, obviously, the reader knows that he's being uh, coerced into doing these, these thefts uh, quite against his will. Uh, but really, I, you know, it's interesting. The first issue was really solid. The second issue, not as much. Third and fourth issues, I think, they really kind of fell off. And then the fifth issue really grabbed things back, grabbed me as a reader, and really... Uh, 
kind of bore down, and this is what the story we're trying to tell is. And then when it kind of finally became clear that this is where they wanted to go with it, I was very on board. And then we have this issue, again, extremely strong, if only the artwork was a little bit stronger as well. Because now I'm really getting more interested in, in how Gambit's going to get out of this. Like, i not a big fan of Gambit as a solo character, generally. I think he works better as a team. But here I'm actually seeing him work quite well as a solo character, and it's actually kind of cool. So I do enjoy it. I gave it a 7.5 out of 10. Next up, and, and now you're going to notice that in, the, in the next series of books, there's going to be a lot of 7s. <laughs> it, it, and that's 6 and 7s are kind of my my indifference uh, levels in terms of when I give ratings. Because like generally speaking, most books that I read are not bad. They may not be to my taste, but they're still technically on a certain level of quality. So generally speaking, I don't usually give... Uh, ratings that are lower than fives because to me like you have to be at least a serviceable comic book to get a five and then if I enjoy it it goes higher if I don't enjoy it it goes lower Um, generally speaking most comics that are published are not bad Uh, but uh, New Avengers is a book that made me consider how I was rating and I did end up giving it a six and a half out of ten this is New Avengers number 34 but it also really frustrated me as well Um, just because uh, if Especially with the, the recent issues of Avengers, which ended Bendis' run in that title, it basically felt like Bendis was taking his toys, putting them back on the shelf, and then going home. And I, I, I understand that he was just kind of trying to mark a clear line between this is the old way, this is the old um, era that I was writing, and this is, and then there's going to be a new era after this. And I appreciate that, but it also just felt awkward. Um, the, so Brian Michael Bendis wrote this issue. Mike Diodato is the regular artist on this, but there's a, a bunch of different pages that are basically the, the jam session. So they're they listed as the jam artists. So you got Chuck B.B., Farrell, Dalyrimple, uh, Ming Doyle, three artists I don't know, Lucy Nisley, don't know who that is either, Becky Cloonan I know because she was on Demo, uh, and then we got Eve Bigarel. So I actually don't know any of those names, which I apologize. I'm sure they're really good artists, but I've never heard of them before. Um... Although the, the Diodato artwork is brilliant, I didn't care for the story. And I haven't cared for the story since it started two issues ago. You have Brother Voodoo's uh, brother, uh, <laughs> brother Voodoo's brother basically haunting Doctor Strange and trying to get revenge on him. Doctor Strange fighting against him, and now he has to fight um, this character as he takes over the various members of the New Avengers. Uh, didn't really care for this, and having all the jam session didn't help because then it just made... It made the the storyline that I already wasn't enjoying all that much have a, a level of artistic inconsistency that you could only have when you have many different artists jamming and really not communicating with each other at all, and not and it just doesn't work. Plus, when this issue kind of ends, it I do like seeing the ancient one again, but it felt very pat. It felt very oh look, I'm done with the book now. I'm the one who took away uh, Doc uh, Doc Strange's. Uh, status as being the Sorcerer Supreme. I'm the one who took away his cape, and I have Agamotto. I'm the one who kind of gave him this, this new style he's been doing for a long time now. Um, let's put him back there. Now he's going to be Doctor Strange again. He's going to be the squad, the uh, Sorcerer Supreme once more. And so it, it really just felt like, you know, I'm just putting the putting it back the way I left it. Uh, the same could be said of Luke Cage selling the Avengers Mansion for $5 to uh, Iron Man, which didn't make any real sense at all, and him just deciding that I'm, you know, I'm out, I had a good time, but I'm a dad now, which I get, but it just felt very, like, is anyone even going to touch Luke Cage again? Like, the way that that Bendis handles him, if anyone brings him back within the next year, it's just going to feel awkward. Um, and, and I like that 
Bendis kind of got to write him into the sunset, but he made the character popular, and now he's just putting him away. So it just felt weird, and I just, I just didn't enjoy this. This is the last issue. I should have felt more of a connection to what was going on here, but instead, I haven't have felt, felt a strong connection to this version of the New Avengers. Um, it's been a, it feels like a long time since the 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 New Avengers first started for the, like the first New Avengers, which sounds like a ridiculous sentence, but uh, I mean, this is already round two. Um, and this 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 series, this New Avengers Volume Two, never really felt the same way. Didn't have the same level of excitement, and the way it ends just kind of felt like it was going out a bit with a whimper, just kind of undoing things that happened in earlier storylines and putting things back to their status quo. And I don't usually equate that with Brian Michael Bendis as a writer. He usually likes to challenge things and try and take things in new directions and leave them in there and then let someone else deal with it. And this felt more like he was told to, you know what, we got to put everything back the way it was when you found it like seven or eight years ago and uh, you better get to doing that fast. And that's kind of detracted from my enjoyment here. And plus having that jam session didn't work for me either. It reminded me of the kind of failed experiment in Daredevil 50 when Brian Michael Bendis is writing it. Because you had this great showdown between uh, Daredevil and the Kingpin, and then you had all these different artists, so there was such a level of inconsistency in the way the Kingpin looked and how big he was, how fat he was. Uh, it just didn't work, and I, I appreciated what they were trying to do artistically, but it just, there was no flow. In fact, having this change of different artists just absolutely massacred any flow they might have had. And just, I felt so nonplussed and not engaged at all. And that's kind of how I felt here. I ended up giving a 6.5 out of 10 because I guess the Diodata artwork really did help save it, but this could have been more, it should have felt more monumental. I mean, he's been writing these characters for so long, and yet by the end of this book, I was kind of like, yeah, bring on Hickman. I want to see how he writes the Illuminati because I'm done. And I didn't want to feel that way, but the the script just didn't motivate me at all. And I, it just as a reader, I just felt very disenchanted. And I was happy that it was over. And I would not have thought that's how I would feel when this book finally ended. But there you go. Next up is Red Lanterns number 14. Now, I actually didn't even intend on reading this. Uh, I didn't review it, as I said before, as many books as I had originally anticipated, and I had a little bit of extra time, so I was like, okay, I'll read Red Lanterns, I'll see if I can get through it. I haven't really been able to read a lot of the issues. This was actually fairly enjoyable. Uh, Peter Mulligan wrote it with uh, Miguel Sepulveda, or Sepulveda on artwork. Uh, this is probably one of the stronger issues I've read, but that being said, I haven't read a lot of the uh, Red Lanterns issues. I really liked how Atrocitus is written here. I liked how he coordinated and acted with his core. I like how he actually had a pretty good idea of what to do against uh, the Third Army. Uh, this is actually just really enjoyable. and I was surprisingly really in tune with everything that was going on here. I want to see what happens next for this character, for Atrocitus. I want to see what he tries to do with the Manhunters and how he's reliving this and how that's even possible. I did not expect to enjoy this at all. This was a real pleasant surprise, considering especially that I have not been digging the other chapters of the Third Army in the other Green Lantern books. I mean, at, at least in, in as much as they actually pertain to the Third Army. They're not bad books on their own, but in terms of it being part of a quote-unquote crossover, they've kind of failed to to make any kind of a mark and, and a lasting impression on me as a reader. But this actually felt like they were actually doing something interesting with the Red Lanterns coming up against a foe that they can't easily dominate and uh, and use the power of, of anger and, and hatred against. So this was actually really, really cool stuff. I give it a 7 out of 10. It wasn't the perfect issue, but it definitely made me more interested in reading more issues of this series, which... I would not have thought possible, so kudos for uh, Peter Mulligan. 
Next up is Secret Avengers number 34. This is a book I want to enjoy so much more than I actually do, and it's almost frustrating that I don't. Um, this issue is written by uh, Rick Remender. You got artwork by Scalera. Uh, it's just, first of all, artistically, Mateo Scalera is not the best artist on this book. It's very inconsistent. Um, sometimes it's, it'll just wow me, and sometimes you have this really awkward shot, like the first main shot of Black Widow here. I think it's a few pages in. Uh, it just doesn't look right artistically. It's almost like it's trying to be an Eminem-esque uh, uh, picture, but it just it it does not achieve that in any way, shape, or form. Um, I'm just kind of ready for this title to be over, and I'm not even sure if it is over or ending. But like, I like these characters. I like Hawkeye. I like Captain Britain. I like. You know, I like uh, Valkyrie, I like uh, Venom, as uh, Flash Thompson Venom, but I just don't care about this whole Descendants storyline, and it just keeps going on, and every time I think it's almost over, then suddenly we get, you know, um, uh, the evil version of, uh, I think it was, what, Black Ant or whatever, I don't even remember what it was called, the Eric O'Grady, who's now dead, but we have an evil version of him. I just don't care about the Descendants. I want Remender to just move on and t give me something new, give me something more exciting, and this just isn't it. Uh, so I gave that a 6 out of 10. And the artwork didn't really move me either. Uh, in terms of books not necessarily living up to their potential, Talon number 2 felt that way. Talon number 0 was really strong, really interesting. I really enjoyed Talon number 1. Uh, this issue was okay, but it wasn't anything that special. Um, like, I felt like there was a bunch of pages where there's a lot of dialogue that wasn't really adding a lot to the story, and I felt like I could almost start flipping through a little bit because it just wasn't it wasn't capturing me. I, I like the basic premise, but I think they were overselling it. They were overwriting it. Uh, this issue is written by Scott Snyder and James... It's either Tinny in the Fourth or Tiny in the Fourth, and I don't know which one it is, and I heard someone on uh, a different podcast... Uh, I actually say the correct pronunciation, but I don't remember what it was. So I do apologize. It's one of the two. Uh, the artwork here is by Juan Jose Rip. Um, and I, there's some panels here where if you look at Calvin Rose's armor, it almost looks like a ripoff of, of Aquaman's armor. I'm still not a huge fan of the suit. Um, it, it is god-awful ugly. But I kind of liked how the, how, and dug how the story worked. I mean, you got uh, a town fighting against uh, Calvin Rose. you got Calvin Rose trying to, you know, kind of coordinate with his new, let's call him Microchip or, or Q. Like, he's basically his man behind the scenes. He's kind of directing things from, uh, he's not a field agent. He's just trying to assist them through to achieve their given and stated objectives. That's basically what it is. And we're also setting up uh, one of the, I guess, a really great town that uh, he's going to end up fighting against in future issues. The issue wasn't bad by any means. It just... It just didn't fail to live up to how exciting I was, uh, how excited I was after reading the last two issues. I give it a seven out of ten, though. Uh, next up is Thor: God of Thunder number two. I actually, in a lot of ways, enjoy this more than the last issue. I'm still not sure how I feel about it because I don't know how much I enjoy reading a, a story where you know you got the flashback, which is cool. You got the current storyline, which is neat. However, knowing that the story's not really over until the future kind of makes it a little bit less enjoyable for me. I don't know why. I don't know how to explain that. Uh, it's written by Jason Aaron with artwork by Asad Ribic. Not Asad Ribic's best. I think that's because this is this is a monthly book, or in this case, what, uh, bi-weekly? Um, but, and it kind of looks bi-weekly, if that makes any sense. Like, it's not quite as detailed as Asad Ribic's general artwork is. Usually, it's extremely rich here. It's good. But it's not amazing. It's not his best. But it's still solid. 
Um, I did in some ways enjoy it more than the last issue because some of my issues with the last issue were, you know, you have Thor answering uh, a prayer, where that come from? Um, you have the version of him from the past, which felt like a lot like the Thor that we saw in the Thor movie. This issue kind of expanded upon both those aspects, but in ways that I still appreciated and enjoyed. I like seeing the younger Thor more than I thought I would, uh, and the present-day Thor as well. I'm unsure how I feel about the whole future aspect. I do give credit to uh, Jason Aaron for writing a story like that. I mean, these types of stories usually work out quite well. I mean, there was one maybe 10, 12 years ago, maybe even more than that, actually, where you had, uh, I think, three different versions of, was it The Flash or Green Lantern, or maybe it's been done with both fighting a villain or a series of villains or that basically, like, you know, it was almost like each generation had to, to take on this, this this task. I apologize, I can't remember much more about it. So so I did actually kind of like that idea. Again, it just makes me feel like the present doesn't matter because the future we're seeing as well, if that makes any sense. I give it a 7 out of 10. So we're moving into the home stretch. We've got three books left. Uh, we have Uncanny Avengers number 2. Uh... I think I felt less conflicted about this one and less frustrated than the last one. I still hope that they do an adequate job of explaining exactly how and why this Red red Skull is here. Like, they kind of do, but I thought they could have done a little bit more to explain it. Uh, and him and this random team that he's now got. I do like that when I read how Red Skull is written here, it does make me think of the Hugo Weaving version of the character that was in the Captain America movie, and I think that's actually a big plus. That's... So it's a good job that they've written him that way. Um, I apologize. They did explain exactly how he shows up here. I, I wish we'd have a little bit more of an idea of exactly how he was able to do what he's doing here. But, I mean, he's basically got a part of Xavier's brain now for some reason. And that still really bothers me. But that actually did lead to a really affecting scene where uh, Scarlet Witch and Rogue come across... Uh, basically the body that had just had his mind scooped out of it. And it was actually very affecting because I forget sometimes that like Rogue has a, had a very deep connection with Xavier because you know he was the one who, who saved her, who brought her away from a life that could have been very, very dangerous because she was already messed up after uh, her exposure to the Avengers when she was working with the, the Brotherhood led by Mystique. So it was actually quite a moving... Uh, uh, portrayal of them, and then we also got to see a little bit more of Wolverine here. There's a little bit more. Uh, they, they expand the cast a little bit more than last issue, but again, I kind of wanted to see the team more formulated and not just kind of see it done on the fly. Um, yeah, it, it's not a bad issue, and I, I'm interested to see how it goes and moves onward from here. I'm still e kind of freaked out and. Not freaked out, but um, something is very unsettling and bothersome about the disrespect given to Charles Xavier. Like, they already killed off the character. Isn't that enough? Do you really need to give him a like, scoop out his brain and then put it on a, a weird, you know, time-shifted version of the Red Skull? Like, I, that's not necessary in any way, and it just feels like, you killed the character off, let that be it. Don't do that to his brain. Like, it, ugh. It just, it's not right. Uh, next up is, so I give that a 7 out of 10. Next up is Venom number 27.1. Now, this is a book which got waylaid by a crossover, just like it did before with the Circle of Four. Um, now, for those who have actually followed solicits, etc., they'll know that there's a big change coming to this book, and next issue, Venom is moving away from New York, and he's going to be going to Philadelphia. 
I think this is really can only be a good thing. Hopefully we'll get uh, an, kind of a, a new expanded supporting cast. A lot similar to uh, what they did with uh, Scarlet Spider. They moved him out of New York. He got a supporting cast of actually some pretty interesting and enjoyable characters. Um, and uh, they really gave him some interesting dynamics to play off of in terms of the characterizations between them. And he moved to Houston. So I'm hoping that the same kind of magic works for Flash Thompson. And I loved seeing him here, uh, him kind of uh, having to um, confront the bully he used to be and who he used to be as a man and what his actions did to others. Um, we see a, a previously unknown or an unheard of uh, classmate of his and Peter's. We also see Peter talking about how, you know, he hated going to school. He loved school, but sometimes he would dread going to school because Flash Thompson was there. He would eat alone and then he'd be scared that Flash Thompson would be in a certain spot and he might ambush him and beat him up or whatever. And you like... It's it's an it's a an aspect that whenever they do modern retellings of Peter Parker's origin, they always make sure to include Flash Thompson as the bully. I mean, we even had that in the most recent uh, Amazing Spider-Man movie. But in comics, it's it's been like more than forty years since they've been friends, or at least friendly. Uh, so it's interesting to kind of to look back at that and really look at this is how much of a jerk he really was before he kind of got tempered and and uh, Peter ended up standing up for himself and eventually they became friends. As a comic book reader, they've been friends for decades. It's easy to forget how bad it used to be between them. Um, although, as I said, whenever they do a modern reinterpretation of the character, they're always showing his jerky beginnings and we never really get to see him actually becoming a friend of Peter. Although, in Amazing Spider-Man at the end, you do kind of see... You know, maybe there's a bit of a grudging respect. Maybe they could be friends. Um, so I like I like what this issue basically had to say, um, and I'm interested to see what Philadelphia will be like with Venom in it. So I give it a seven and a half out of ten. I the book as a whole I think needs to have more direction. I think the first two years under Rick Remender definitely had a there was a really good direction, but in the middle there was still like Spider Island happened, which was really cool. So. And it gave it a, a focus, so that was okay. And then you had the cross-country, which seemed cool, but then the Circle of Four, which really derailed it. But then you had the Savage Six and all that stuff, which was really cool. And then you had the most recent Demonic Storyline, which, again, another one. And then we had Minimum Carnage, which sounded cool on paper, kind of. It kind of sounded kind of neat. And him teaming up with Scarlet Spider, but then in actuality, it kind of just made the book feel like it had even less of a purpose, even less direction. So hopefully relocating the character, giving him a new supporting cast will mean that we'll get to see a little bit more out of who Flash Thompson really is now when he's not just Venom almost all the time. Um, I think when the book first started, we got more of that balance. And we haven't gotten that balance in a long time, but hopefully we'll get something like that. So I gave Venom number 27.1 a 7.5 out of 10. Again, it's a weird issue for it to be a point one. Because it's not, it is setting up the next, you know, years worth of stories, but only in so much as on the last page he decides I'm leaving New York. Next issue is the one that sets up the next, you know, status quo more than this one. But that's just a gripe we've had a lot with a lot of these point ones. They're not really setting up for the next years worth of stories. They're just doing something else. Uh, anyway, next up in the last book that we're going to look at is X-Men Legacy number 2. The first issue didn't really dig it, and it felt like a zero issue in a lot of ways. This issue, we got a little bit more of an idea of what this book is going to be like. I wasn't so sure going in. I thought it was a bit of a mess. Uh, by the end, they had me. Um, there's something about you know Legion kind of deciding that I'm gonna I'm 
that he's gonna figure out how this all, is all gonna work. He, he he has these powers. He's gonna he's gonna get everything under control. He's gonna take control of his own life. Uh, I actually really dug it. There was a lot of issues, a lot of pages to get to that point that didn't necessarily add a lot to the story. But by the time you get to the end, you definitely felt like okay. This is what this book is going to be about. This is going to be about Legion confronting his own demons, taking control of his own life, taking control of his power sets, and actually putting them into into place and really mastering himself, uh, and not letting anyone kind of take advantage of who he, of his powers or who he is, and trying to really stand up for himself and be his father's son. So Simon Spurrier, you have definitely at least bought yourself a reprieve. The first issue wasn't so great, but this was a lot better. The artwork is in this issue by is, is by Tan and Huat. Um, not a huge fan, to be honest with you. It's a little bit better here, but it's a little bit sloppy. Uh, not nearly as as concise and structured as it could be. There's some weird panels here of some weird, creepy stuff that's happening, and I just thought it, it could have been handled better. Unfortunately, like there's some really cool concepts at play, but they just kind of dropped the ball a little. So that's unfortunate. And that's the last issue I'm actually going to be reviewing this week. The books I didn't get a chance to review uh, include the following. Uh, All-Star Western, number 14. Before Watchmen, Ozymandias, number 4. Before Watchmen, Silk Spectre, number 4. Captain America and Black Widow, 639. Fury of Firestorm, The Nuclear Man, number 14. Justice League Dark, number 14. Phantom Lady, number 4. Savage Hawkman, number 14. Superman, number 14. Teen Titans, number 14. A lot of 14s. Uh, Ultimate Comics Iron Man number 2, Ultimate Comics X-Men number 19, Wolverine Max number 2, and Extreme X-Men number 7. Yes, that's a lot of books. My apologies. Again, this has been a busy week. I didn't have a chance to get through nearly as many as normal. So thank you again for joining us for the review episode of Comic Shenanigans. This was episode number 31. Our next episode, episode number 32, will be going up on Wednesday, uh, I guess that's uh, December the 5th. And it's going to be an episode which is going to be the, our top five favorite forgotten characters. As myself and my special guest, Bennett Riley, will be t- counting down our top five. Week after that, on December the 12th, we're going to be having our Talking Hero Clicks uh, Extra Edition episode, where my, uh, well, frequent guest, especially for the Hero Clicks episodes, he's my regular guest, uh, Nathan Strzok will be joining me as we talk about. A variety of different Heroclix uh, items. And then the week after that will be our regularly scheduled Heroclix episode. And that will be uh, December 19th, which will be talking Heroclix December edition. So I hope that you stay tuned for those upcoming episodes in the next three weeks. As well, we'll be having our regular review episodes, hopefully still hitting on Sundays. Uh, in some cases, maybe on Mondays. I have a vacation coming up, so I may have to move some things around. But thank you very much for joining us for another episode of Comic Shenanigans, and make sure to uh, give us a listen next time. Bye-bye.